faithfulness of God, of God showing himself in the fulfillment of promise and also God showing himself in the consequences of suffering. So what we want to do is we want to learn the secret of what it means to encounter God, encounter the hidden hand of God in the middle of the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. And honestly, as I was praying about this passage, as I was praying about what I was going to share with you, uh, I, I really sense that the Father has a word for Living Faith Alliance Church. And I think, he wants to, I think he wants to get close to us. I think he wants to get close to us in the middle of the, the, the piled-on pain in our own lives, just like he got close to Jacob, just like he got close to Joseph. I think he wants to get close to you and to me, and he wants to speak like a good dad would he wants to speak words of hope in the place of that vulnerability. And the words of hope are going to be words about what is the unseen work of God, about where he is behind the scenes. So I want to pray for us as we listen up, as we are attentive uh, to what God the Father would have to say uh, to us as church. So let's pray. So, Father, I ask that you would first have our attention, that as an act of worship, we would listen up. As an act of worship, we would tune into your voice. There are a lot of voices that are clamoring for our attention even right now. There are worries, there are concerns, there are plans, there are hopes, there are dreams, there are all sorts of things that, that want to take our mind down a road of focus, and God, I think you're calling us to attention, and I think you have something very precious that you want to share with us, your church, and so I pray that we would honor you by giving you our attention. So Jesus, be glorified as we learn about you and your ways this morning. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so as I said, this is Genesis chapter 42. Uh, and like I said before, uh, like I said before, we're gonna start out with a frustrated Jacob. And so this story is gonna unfold with four scenes. Um, so this is scene number one. And what's going on is, as I said, they're facing a massive crisis. Uh, but it gets worse than that for Jacob because it's a massive crisis, and it seems like he's the only one that's paying attention. He has 11 sons, and they've offered zero solutions to the crisis that's at hand. Um, it's like his sons failed to even notice what was obvious to Jacob. So he's like, why do you look at one another? Like, guys, you're just standing there. Crisis is at the door. Let's go. Can you feel the frustration for Jacob? Like there's a problem here and you guys aren't responding. And his sons failed to notice what was obvious to Jacob. Jacob is coming towards the end of his life here. Uh, in chapter 48, we're going to find out that he's blind. But even as he's going blind, he's far more perceptive than his 11 sons. 
And so Joseph saw the need to prepare for famine. And I'm sure you feel like Jacob sometimes. We're like, am I the only one that's seeing the problems here? Am I the only person that's taking action? Right, so that's where, that's, where, uh, uh, that's where Jacob is at at the beginning of this story. And so the situation in Canaan is bad. He's not exaggerating. Uh, we can see here that uh, the situation is a life or death situation. If we don't act, we don't live. Come on, guys, we gotta, we gotta wake up. So Jacob has a plan. Uh, he hears that there's grain for sale in Egypt. As you remember, there's grain for sale in Egypt because of Joseph's interpretation of the dream and then Joseph's immediate uh, plan to stockpile grain during the seven years of plenty so that they could then sell it during the seven years of famine. So Egypt has uh, some wealth, and so they're going to go to Egypt so we don't die. I imagine at some point he said, do I have to do all the thinking around here? Um, I think that would have come from my mouth at some point if I was in uh, his shoes or sandals, whatever. All right, so, um, so the narrator of the story repeats the name Egypt, says it three times, um, and the reason it's emphasized is not because he thinks we have bad reading comprehension. He's emphasizing this because he's setting us up for an encounter between Joseph, who was sold into slavery by this same group of 10 brothers that were going to be visiting him in Egypt, right? So Joseph has risen to power in Egypt, and uh, you know the storyteller is saying, hey, they're going to Egypt. Remember what's happening in Egypt? Egypt is in the forefront. As if we were missing the point, uh, he emphasizes the fact that this isn't about uh, Jacob's sons. He calls them Joseph's brothers, Right, so uh, the the tension is building um, for uh, Joseph's reunion with his ten brothers that he hasn't seen since they sold him into slavery. So <clears throat> we also see here that Jacob refuses to send Benjamin. So he has eleven boys at home. He's only going to send ten uh, because he doesn't want to send Benjamin. Benjamin, as you know, is Joseph's. Uh, Full brother, the rest are half brothers. So he is Joseph's younger brother. They are both uh, children of Rachel, who is the favored wife. So they are the favored children, uh, and it certainly implies uh, to the rest of the ten, "Hey, you guys can go. I just don't want to send Benjamin. We can spare you, but not, but not this one." So uh, we see that Jacob is continuing in his very unhealthy patterns of favoritism. And our narrator provides a hint of what is to come by explaining that Jacob has a fear that some sort of harm uh, would come to Benjamin. <clears throat> so why would he fear that some sort of harm would come to Benjamin? Well, uh, I don't know, 20-some years earlier, uh, he sent his son Joseph to be with his 10 brothers, and harm came to him. And so he has a group of, of boys that... Uh, it seems like he does not trust very, uh, very much, um, and with good reason, because they were the ones that had plotted first to kill uh, his favorite son, and then ultimately uh, they recanted and instead just sold him into slavery. So he has good reason not to trust the brothers, um, so he doesn't send Benjamin uh, with them, um, which is going to build, and we're going to see in a little bit why that becomes particularly important. Um, 
So that's the first scene. The first scene closes uh, with them heading out uh, where it says, and then the sons of Israel come to buy, uh, they join in with the other refugees who are returning to Egypt in order to go to the world superpower in order to get some food. Um, So they were among those who went to buy grain in Egypt. So we get a little glimmer of hope for Jacob as we come to the end of scene number one. Then open scene number two. Uh, and we find that there's a, uh, the brothers face, uh, the 10 brothers face their first test with Joseph. The scene opens, they find themselves in Egypt, right? So the brothers now are in Egypt. Uh, and you re- may remember that Joseph has that important administrative uh, position in Egypt. So part of his job is since he has the plan, uh, since he ha- <clears throat> has administrated the collecting of the grain, Now he's going to meet with every person that comes to Egypt to buy grain from Egypt. So the brothers are going to come to Egypt, and they have to stand before their brother, their brother Joseph. Um, So he, it says he personally uh, oversaw um, this, um, the allocation of food. So he's putting them in the path of this confrontation between the brothers. So his brothers come to Egypt. Uh, and they meet with what they perceive is the governor, not what they perceive is their little brother. They're meeting with the governor of Egypt, this person of power. There's no one with more power in all of the land of Egypt, arguably all of the world, than Joseph, uh, who's only second to Pharaoh. Um, And so they're going to meet with him. They see him as the governor of the land, uh, not as their little brother Joseph. So what do you do when you meet the authority of the land? Well, you offer proper deference to the master of the land. So what they do is they bow down their faces to the ground before the governor of Egypt, which is Joseph. And all of a sudden, we return in our mind to chapter 37, and we remember Joseph's dreams. Joseph's dreams was that his brothers would come around him and bow down to him. And this was an oracle from God, a promise from God of this is what is in your future. And then he gets sold into slavery. Then he gets lied about and put in prison. Then he gets forgotten in prison. And now, decades later, what God had promised is coming to fulfillment. And in case... We're not sure Joseph remembers the dreams that he had, right? Joseph knew at this moment, God, you are fulfilling what you had promised. God, your your hand has been on me all of these years. It, It is not a random set of circumstances. What you promised, you fulfilled. And in this moment, Joseph is beginning to see the fulfillment as his brothers bow down before him. So we know that Joseph remembers, Joseph recognizes them, uh, but we also know that they don't recognize Joseph. It says that uh, two times in the passage that Joseph recognizes them, they don't recognize him. And now Joseph is going to interact with his brothers. And what you're going to find is that his treatment of his brothers is rather harsh. And you're going to be tempted to think it's because he has uh, unresolved conflict in his heart and he wants to punish his brothers. But that is not the case. 
We actually remember when his sons were born, Ephraim and Manasseh, their names meant that like he had done business with God and he realized God had remembered him and God's hand was... Joseph doesn't have it in for his brothers. But what he's going to do is, is he's going to test his brothers. He's going to test and see if just as God had been testing and refining Joseph to see if God had refined his brothers, to see if his brothers were, were indeed repentant and if they were broken, to see if maybe his brother Benjamin were in jeopardy. He's going to test his brothers. So what does he do to test them? He accuses them of being spies, that they have come to spy out the vulnerability or the nakedness of Egypt. During the famine, is there a way that one government could take advantage of the vulnerability of Egypt? Sometimes famines could be regional. Um, that's still the case in our world. There's famines in our world today. Sometimes famines can be regional. So uh, for one country to take advantage of another country during a regional famine uh, wasn't out of the realm of possibility. So he charges them with being uh, he charges them with being spies, um, but in reality, what he's trying to do is determine the character of his brothers. This is not personal retaliation, um, and so uh, we know that because in in a little bit we're going to see that he was testing them. Uh, that was the intent of his uh, the intent of his heart. So what he does is he starts to interrogate them. And so he gets the big spotlight out, and he puts them under pressure. They're already bowed down to him. They're already nervous. It's a life-and-death situation. Now he starts to ask them these questions and make these accusations. So they kind of fumble through the accusations of Joseph, and they give out some information that they will later on regret sharing. Uh, and they say, we are all sons of one man. Uh, we are honest men. Um, and then we're also going to see that they share that um, that there's a younger brother that's in the picture. So they give away this information and bumbling through this process, they're certainly at a disadvantage. Why? Because Joseph knows the answer to all these questions, um, but they don't know that it's Joseph. They don't know that they're being tested. Um, and unwittingly, they provide Joseph with the information that he can now test. And so he uh, devises a plan to prove that they are honest. Right, So they end up telling him about uh, Benjamin, the younger brother. And I would imagine when Joseph first hears this information, that's a, like a, uh, an encouraging piece of information, that Benjamin is alive, that Benjamin is safe, that Benjamin is back with his dad. Um, but right on the heels of that encouraging bit of information, there's this little bit of pain where they say, and one is no more. Right? And one of our brothers is no more. And the great irony here is they're saying, and one is no more, and they're talking to that one. They're telling Joseph that he, in fact, uh, is no longer. Uh, but again, they're unaware of who it is that they're really talking to. Um, and so Joseph, again, insists that, uh, that they are uh, that they're spies, and he is going to, as you see there, that he is going to be testing them uh, and so he rejects their reasoning of their pleas of innocence, just like they had once rejected uh, his plea for rescue. Um, so here's his plan. So he's going to examine their claim of honesty that they're not, they're not spies. So he says, okay, here's what we can do. Uh, I will keep um, the nine of you in prison, and we'll send one back. You go get Benjamin, 
and verify the fact that you have another brother that he's in the land of Canaan, you bring him back to me, uh, then I will uh, agree that you're not spies, we can test the truth of it, uh, and then we can see if you are spies or if you're telling the truth, which all the while Joseph knows the truth of the matter, right? So what he's really devising is something that is going to ensure security for whom? Who is going to be secure in this plan that Joseph is putting forward? There's one person that's going to be safe, and that's going to be Benjamin, right? So in Joseph's plan is you go get Benjamin, bring him back to me. So Joseph, I'm sure, remembers the vulnerability of when he was uh, in the hands of his brothers. So he's making sure that their life depends on, right, the fact that they bring Benjamin back to him safely. So most likely, Joseph is trying to secure uh, the uh, safety for his younger brother, Benjamin. And then he frames all of this uh, with, as surely as Pharaoh lives. Uh, in other words, if you don't live up to, right, if you don't live up to the standard of, of this agreement, then my conclusion is that you're spies, and then there will be... Um, there will be an unstated punishment that goes with the fact that you are spies in the land of Egypt. So Joseph tells them that information, and then he puts them in custody, uh, puts them in prison for three days so that they can sit on uh, this strategy, and they can kind of stew in it for a little bit. Uh, so that's what's happening for them. They are now three days in prison, and with that, we end scene number two. Uh, and then we open up with scene number three, three days later, uh, and there's another test uh, the second test for this group of 10. Uh, and as the scene opens, we find out that there's a change of plans that Joseph has experienced during the three-day period. Uh, and so Joseph shows his brothers some leniency and says, okay, I got, I got a new, new idea. Um, so instead of me keeping nine in prison and sending one, I'll keep one in prison and send nine. Uh, and uh, this change of plans ensures that two things happen. Now all the provision for the family back in the land of Canaan can be carried um, by the nine brothers that are returning. Uh, so he, he provides for his family that way. And he also sets up the exact same scenario that they faced uh, with Joseph when he was young, where they had, uh, they had the provision that they came for, and then they're able to return again to their dad, and they have the opportunity to lie about the one who's missing, right? So Simeon is going to stay in Egypt. They could make up a lie about Simeon in Egypt just like they made up a lie about Joseph uh, in being sold into slavery, right? So Joseph is recreating the exact same scenario as a way of testing his brothers, and so um, Joseph played his role flawlessly. He gives them this information. He doesn't tell it to them um, from his own mouth. He, he speaks to them through an interpreter as if he doesn't speak Hebrew. Um, and so then they start talking among themselves while Joseph is present, not realizing that this prince of Egypt, this governor, is able to understand everything uh, that they're saying. And so they start talking, um, and... Uh, in verse 21, they said to one another, um, this, is, this is because of what we did to Joseph. Um, it, it, we heard the cries of his distress 
and we ignored him. And because we ignored him, that is why this calamity or this pain or this suffering is now on us. And then Reuben pipes in and he says, yep, I told you so. Didn't I tell you not to sin against Joseph all those years ago? But you didn't listen. And now comes the reckoning. Right Now comes the day of judgment for you. So your current struggle is a direct result of that past sin. Let's sit on that one for a second, because that is a fantastic question. Are they right? Like, is their current struggle a result of their past sin? Well, let me, before I answer that, let me say this. The Bible answers that question two ways. There are times when your current struggle is a direct result of your past sin. And there are other times where your current struggle has nothing to do with your sin or anybody else's sin. Okay, so the Bible answers it both ways. So I say that because some of you, every time you're facing struggle, you look inward and say, what did I do wrong? Oh, I got to do it right. If I don't do it right, everything's just going to go bad. Right? That's not a biblical posture. Sometimes bad things are a result of your sin. Sometimes it's just a result of living in a broken world. Okay? But in this situation, is their predicament a result of their sin? Well, on one hand, I answer yes. This is a direct result of their sin. They are being questioned harshly by Joseph. He is testing them to see if repentance has happened. Why? because they sold him into slavery, because they sinned against him. They are having to make an account to the person they sinned against. He would 100% trust them if they hadn't had betrayed him a couple of decades earlier. So yes, this is clearly a result of their sin. On the other hand, no, this is not a result of their sin. Because God had so ordained the rescue of his people. A famine was coming to the land. So God made a way to prepare deliverance for his people by sending Joseph ahead of his family to a place of, pro of prominence in Egypt so that he would be able to rescue God's people. The brothers had nothing to do with that. That was all God's initiative. So on one hand, yes, they're guilty. On the other hand, no, God is completely in charge. And both of those answers are clearly supported in the narrative of Genesis 37 to 50. It's both in there. The Bible has no problem with those two ideas being true right alongside of each other. So we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So Joseph is now hearing his brothers talk about the, 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 their own sorrow, talk about uh, their grief over what they did to Joseph as they're facing the consequences uh, of their sin. And hearing this, Joseph can't contain himself, um, so he turns away because he doesn't want them to know that he understands what they're saying. He starts weeping. He then composes himself, and then he comes back, uh, and as is his pattern, he's faithful to what he said. So he puts his plan into action. So he turns away from them, he weeps, and then he returns to them, uh, and he grabs Simeon. Um, he binds Simeon in front of them so that they can see that he's a captive, uh, and then he sends them away. Why did he pick Simeon to keep in prison? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, um, but he hangs on to Simeon 
uh, and he sends the rest of the brothers on his way. But before he sends them on his way, he tells his servants to make sure they put the silver that, they, uh, that his brothers had used to pay um, for the grain, put that back in uh, their bags of grain, uh, and also to give them additional provisions for the journey. Right? So Joseph sets them up, and so the brothers, uh, the brothers leave, uh, and after they leave at one point, they must stop along the way. One of the brothers opens up um, his bag of grain and finds the silver there. And so now, all of a sudden, they're carefully laid plans of we're trustworthy, we're honest men. Now they look like not only are they spies, but they're also robbing Egypt, right? So things look bad for the brothers uh, as they are returning home. Um, so scene three ends with them saying, God, what, what is it that you have done to us? Like, this is, this is worse than we would have imagined. So with that, scene three comes to a close, and we turn to our final scene uh, where the brothers return, and they have to confront uh, probably their worst nightmare uh, is telling their dad uh, about their failed uh, failures in the journey. So scene four opens uh, with them back in the land of Canaan um, with the money and the grain, uh, and they are giving him a report. And if you go through the report... Uh, they are telling it in the most favorable way possible um, for themselves. Um, but they have to first establish the hostile conditions. So they tell him that, uh, what do they call, what do they call uh, Joseph? Um, they call him the Lord over the land. And so they call him that twice. Um, so he's kind of big and powerful and intimidating, and he treats them harshly. Uh, the report doesn't follow exactly the dialogue as uh, it had played out. Um, and then as they're telling it, at some point, I'm sure they recognize that they made a huge mistake in sharing uh, that they were 12 brothers, that sharing that uh, their father was home with the, with the youngest of the brothers, because then that becomes the condition that Joseph gives uh, as he holds Simeon in ransom. And if they ever want grain again, they're going to have to uh, bring Benjamin. And so I'm sure... Like when they told that part of the story, they kind of like moment under their breath because they knew their dad would pick up on that um, and be very frustrated with them uh, for what they had revealed about their family, which is exactly what happens. And so they're kind of making their way through this very awkward conversation. Um, and then, you know, they talk about the, uh, the Lord of the land um, and how he was rough with them. Um, and then uh, it gets worse. Uh, where one of them discovers as they empty the bags of grain, they all discover that the money has been returned, uh, and so things go from bad to worse for the brothers. Um, and so uh, the dad gets very upset, um, so uh, Jacob is angry with them, uh, says Joseph is no more, now Simeon is no more, and he says there's not a chance I'm going to release Benjamin into your care. Like every time you guys go away, uh, with X number of sons, you return with X minus one number of sons. Uh, so I'm not going to give you, uh, I'm not going to give you my favorite. Um, Reuben's the oldest, so he feels responsible. So he makes a vow. Um, Dad, here, you can take my two sons. If I don't return uh, with Simeon and Benjamin, you can take them as collateral. Um, but that doesn't satisfy Jacob. Uh, and so Jacob despairs. He says, everyone is against me. 
Um, you see at the end of the verse here, um, you have bereaved me of my children, right? So the accusation is what they have done against him. You will bring me down. My gray hairs will sorrow um, to Sheol. Like my grief is going to end in my death, and this is, this is your fault. So Jacob went from struggle uh, facing famine at the beginning of the story, a little bit of hope maybe in the provision of Egypt, and then back to despair to the point of his death uh, by the end of the chapter. And I hope that as we went through the story, you're able to identify that in each of the four scenes, there are two sides to every scene. Right? There is the world of Jacob. There's the world of Joseph. There's the world of uh, 10 brothers plus Benjamin. And then in every scene, there is the world of the sovereign God that is over all things. And the interplay of these two storylines is called theologically is called providence. When, when, when the, the divine sovereign work of God interacts with our human storylines Theologically, we call that providence. And I'm not talking about the one in Rhode Island. I'm talking about the one that expresses God's sovereign rule over our world. And if we want to unlock the key of the story of Joseph, if we want to understand how to encounter God in the middle of the good and the bad and the ugly of life, we need to understand the mysterious beauty called God's providence. Now, I want to take the rest of our time together to look at this theological gem because I believe if we get this truth, if faith rises up to, to, to this revelation, I'm not exaggerating, life changes. If we can be anchored in the fact that our moments are governed by the providence of God, things change for us. So the origin of providence comes about once we understand that God is an all-powerful creator. So then it seems reasonable then, if he's all-powerful, we conclude that he also preserves and governs everything in the universe. We call this preserving and governing. We call it God's providence. Though the term providence is not found in Scripture, you can't look it up in the concordance and find all the passages that say the word providence, it's not found in Scripture. It has been traditionally used to summarize God's ongoing relationship with his creation. But even though it's not a biblical word, it is thoroughly a biblical concept, and every page of Scripture screams that God is providentially in charge of all things. So, since all things are from him and through him and to him, right, the Heidelberg Catechism says this. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism came right out of the Reformation. It was a way of, of grabbing hold of the core, like, themes or tenets of our faith. And so the Heidelberg Catechism says, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things I love those, those absolute statements. All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Uh, another uh, reformer, John Calvin, said, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. 
The highest blessedness lies in our knowledge of it. So here's a, here's a functioning definition for you. Providence is where God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he preserves creation, is concurrent with creation, and directs crea creation to fulfill his purposes. All right, so those three things. He preserves creation, is concurrent with creation, and directs creation to fulfill his purposes. I want to explain each of those three, and that's where we're going to end uh, by explaining those three points. Uh, by the way, uh, a lot of this I, I uh, put together through the help of uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, who is a former professor of mine, and I think the way he organizes the understanding of providence is extremely helpful. Um, so... Uh, God preserving all things. So there's some verses down there that describe the preservation of God in all things. What that means is God keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, right? So God keeps things existing and maintaining the properties uh, with which he created them. So for example, Hebrews 1.3 says uh, that Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power, He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. And being upheld means he carries it. So the universe is carried by the word of God. Colossians 1.7 says uh, um, that in him all things hold together. All things endure because they are held together in him. So if God didn't uphold it by the word of his power, if it wasn't held together in him, it wouldn't function. It wouldn't work. It is God's preservation in creation. This is one of the ways that he expresses, one of the ways that he expresses his providence. One aspect of God's providential preservation is in the fact that he gives us breath at each moment. Elihu in Job 34 says, if he should take back his spirit to himself and gather to himself his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So God is preserving us by keeping our heart beating, by giving us air in order that we would breathe. You're not responsible for those involuntary muscle reactions or responses, but God is, right? God, God, God preserves. So it seems that the clear biblical witness about God is that in preserving all things that he has made, he also causes them to maintain the properties by which he created them, right? So God preserves water in such a way that it continues to act like water, Right? It continues the properties of water. He causes grass right, to continue to act like grass with all of its distinctive characteristics and how it grows or fails to grow. On my drive home a week ago, I saw um, a full rainbow, and I was like driving like to the rainbow for about 45 minutes. It was just incredible. I could see the whole thing. It actually, I could see the double portion a couple of times uh, for the double rainbow. But what's stunning to me is every rainbow I've ever seen in my life follows the same color pattern, right? The, the, the spectrum of light, it doesn't change. It, it reproduces the same way in different locations anywhere I've been in the world. 
because God has preserved it that way. God's providence is our basis for science. God has made and continues to sustain a universe that acts in predictable ways so that we can study it, so that we can rely on it. If a scientific, scientific experiment gives a certain result today, then we can have confidence that if all the factors are the same, tomorrow you will get the same result. And 100 years from now, you'll get the same result. It is the doctrine of God's providence that provides the foundation for technology. Right? Like I can be confident that if my engine is working properly and I put in gasoline, when that gasoline is heated up, it's going to expand and the engine's going to run. Why? Because those properties are going to stay the same year to year to year. Because God, in his providence, preserves it as such. All right, the second point. Providence is not only preserving creation, it's also God being concurrent with creation. Concurrent is like at the same time he's with creation. Now, this is going to sound similar to God preserving creation, but it has to do with his created beings participating with God. So, for example, a botanist can detail the factors that cause grass to grow, such as the sun, the moisture, temperature, nutrients in the soil, etc. right? But biblically, Scripture says God causes the grass to grow. A, a meteorologist can give a complete explanation of the factors that cause rain, uh, humidity, um, temperature, um, you know, atmospheric pressure. They can even produce rain in a weather laboratory. But in Scripture, it says God causes the rain. A physicist with accurate information on the force and direction of a pair of dice, if given all the math of, of where it's going to land, could explain what caused the die to give the certain result it did. But biblically, it says that God brings about the decision of the die that is cast. Right. So what we're seeing is concurrent providence where we don't want to get confused and say God is out of the picture because we get to see the tools that God is using to accomplish his purposes. So this shows us that it is incorrect for us to reason that if we know the natural cause of something in this world, then God did not cause it. The doctrine of concurrence affirms that God directs and works through the distinctive properties of each created thing. So God uses the, the, the creation that he's preserving and works concurrent with it to accomplish his purposes. In that way, it is possible to affirm that in one sense, events are 100% caused by God. And at the exact same time, we can say those same events are 100% caused by the will and decision of man. Just like we did when we looked at the brothers saying, you know, is, is this pain that's coming our way a result of our actions? And the answer is 100% yes, and the answer is also simultaneously 100% no. And the Bible has no problem with presenting a world like that. Do you know why? Because God is so much bigger than our comprehension. And he's interacting with the world around us. And by the miracle of his sheer pleasure, he gives us insight into how things work. So we don't confuse that we get to see the natural tools he uses 
and then erase God from the equation. So our words, our steps, our movements, our hearts, our abilities are all from God. God's providential direction is an unseen, behind-the-scenes, primary cause and should not lead us to deny the reality of our choices and our actions. Again and again, Scripture affirms that what we do actually causes events to happen. We are significant in the accomplishment of his purposes. Let me say it this way, right? I, I want to make sure that we're clear on while God remains, right, concurrent with creation, providentially in charge, he causes, he calls us to act. Just like a rock is really hard because God has made it with the properties of hardness. Just like water is wet because God has made it with the properties of wetness, just as plants are really alive because God has given them the properties of life. Just like that, our choices are real choices and have significant effects. Why? Because God has made us in such a wonderful way that he has endowed us with the ability to choose. Right? That's what God is up to. We have the property, the ability of willing choice, and God works concurrent with his creation to accomplish, number three, his purposes. God directs, in providence, God directs creation to fulfill his purposes. Uh, Psalm 103 says his kingdom, it rules over all. Romans 11 says uh, that from him and through him and to him are all things that God has put, this is 1 Corinthians, that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And God is the one that according to Ephesians 1, he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. So that ultimately, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2. And it is because of this, Paul knows that God is sovereign over all works and his purposes in every event that happens, right, so that, they can, that we can declare with confidence that God causes all things out of Romans 8 to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes, right? God directs crea creation to fulfill his purposes, our God has a plan, and he is providentially directing us to its fulfillment. Life is not random. Life is purposed. Our steps are not haphazard. Our steps are ordered. So what's the application of this? Let me close with giving you three points of application. And I think these three points of application are ways in which we can stir up our hearts to believe in the truth of God's providence, of God's preserving of creation, God's concurrent work in creation, and God's directing of creation. And as we uh, respond to the truth, and maybe we just see it in part right now, maybe we're saying, I believe, help my unbelief, these practices will help cultivate our faith. So the first thing is that encountering God in providence means we must act, 
right? The doctrine of providence in no way encourages us to sit back in idleness and just await the outcome of certain events. I mean, think of Joseph's life, right? Whether it was good circumstances, bad circumstances, challenging circumstances, right, or favorable circumstances. Joseph was faithful. Joseph was taking initiative. Joseph was acting. He wasn't passive saying, well, God promised me something. I'm just going to wait here until it happens, right? In prison, right, he was the best prisoner, right? When he was in charge of Potiphar's household, he was the best one, right? When he was in favor in his dad's house, he was faithful to his father, Right? So Joseph was a man of action. He was doing. And so the doctrine of, of providence is an invitation to act. And I would just hasten to add, act with confidence because God's in charge. Act boldly because, because the Father's in charge. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to get it right all the time. Why? You're not in charge. Right? God is over and directing all things. So the truth about the providence of God should not keep us from acting, uh, but propel us forward as divine agents sent to accomplish the plans and purposes of our Father. Number two, encountering God in his providence means we must pray. Prayer is one of these actions from point number one, right? And it has definite results. It does change the course of events. God has so ordained prayer as very significant means by which we get to concurrently work with God in the accomplishment of his purposes. In other words, God has set things up so that they happen as we pray. Why did he do that? I don't know, but he must want us around. He wants us to participate with him. So based on the providence of God, pray. Partner with God in the accomplishment of his purposes. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. All right, number three. Encountering God in his providence means we must have hope. We must have hope. While the story of Joseph is a twisting story, like it's all over the place, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? It's, It's all in there. But the bottom line of the story, as we peel back, as we take the long view from beginning to end, and as we get insight into what's happening behind the scenes, we find out that God is at work, that God has actually sent a favored son, a cultivated leader ahead of his people into the land of Egypt to prepare a way to rescue the people of God. That's what God is, that's what God is up to. That's the movement of God in the story. So encountering God in his providence means that in the middle of any circumstances, you have the confidence of Joseph. Notice Joseph's confidence all throughout the story. It wasn't in, oh, things are going well, I can trust God now. It wasn't things are favorable, now I believe God. It was no matter what the circumstances were, Joseph's confidence in God remained the same. Why? Because it wasn't based in what he could see. It was based on what God had revealed about himself. It was based on the character of God. I mean, if you just pay attention, if you're not on our prayer chain, please get on our prayer chain because of point number two, right? We, we must pray. But if you've been tracking with our prayer chain, like there have been, there's been some rough 
points of, of prayer on our cha prayer chain the last couple of weeks. I mean, Mike Parsons, his mom came for a visit, and then uh, suddenly um, she, uh, she died. Like, that's, wow, that's a, that's a stunning, that's a stunning, like, turn of events for, for Mike and his family. You saw the news of, of Chris put out about, uh, Pastor Chris put out about his own dad and, and the diagnosis that his own dad received. Like, these are real-life circumstances where nobody would have written the script as it was being played out. That's not what they would have picked, and that's not what I would have picked for them. Right? But that's the circumstances that they find themselves having to, having to walk through. Just like you. I mean, you sit there. I don't know what your personal trouble is. I don't know what conflicts that you're currently in. I don't know what points of pain, what points of disappointment, what points of intimidating uh, that are intimidating that you have to walk through. You all have your own storms. The point is, just like as we're reading Joseph's story, and just like Joseph and Jacob and the brothers at this point in the story, they didn't know the end yet. That's where we are. Right? In our own personal narrative, we don't know the end of the story. Right? So we're in the middle of a chapter. We don't know how far into the book this chapter is. We don't know when this chapter is going to come to an end. So we don't know the, the end of the story. We only know the pain of the chapter that we're currently walking through. And what God is doing by his grace is he's tearing down the veil of our circumstances and giving us insight into what's going on behind every circumstance that you walk through. And that is the providential work of God. That God is working to preserve you, that God is working concurrent with all of creation, and God is leading your circumstances to fulfill his perfect purposes. Now, please don't mistake what I'm saying. I am not saying that there's not grief along the way. I'm not saying this truth is an easy truth to hang on to. Like, we hang on to this truth in the middle of the darkest nights. But I'm also not saying, <clears throat> hey, buck up, little campers, there's a silver lining. Like, I'm not, I'm not dispensing that kind of crap. All right? Please hear me. What I'm saying is that behind your trouble, if you could pull back the veil, there is the providential hand of God that is guiding your moments. And he is guarding you, and he is preserving you for his good purposes. So in all of those moments, whatever your disappointment is, have hope that God is in the middle of that mess. And have hope that that God is good, he is great, he is gracious, and he is glorious. And he is providentially at work in every moment of your existence. So his providence preserves us, is concurrent with our actions, is leading us into every circumstance. And so the invitation, I believe, is an invitation that is an act of volition, is an act of your will, where you say, since God is providentially at work, I will act and not be passive. Since God is providentially at work, I will pray. I don't feel like praying. I will pray. Since God is providentially at work, I will have hope that he is leading these moments. 
So as we end our service, I'm going to invite you to stand as the worship team leads us in a closing song. And I want to invite you to be attentive to which one of these points is God drawing your attention. Maybe he's calling you to a point of action. Maybe he's calling you to a point of faith in some aspect of the providence of God. But tune in to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning. last slide there. Uh, I added the, the link to the prayer chain there for you, so just email prayer at lfachurch.org. Uh, we'll get you subscribed to that, and you'll get those updates uh, when people submit them. That's how you can subscribe. That's how you can submit prayer requests. Um, so this word providence, uh, because it's a theological word, uh, it can create some barriers for us. Um, so I want to I wanna encourage you to say it any better than this. So I apologize if it rubs anybody the wrong way. But putting God in a theological construct or a theological box 
can kind of create this theological smugness that you're correct about God and everyone else is wrong. I don't want you to live in that box. Like step into trusting God with the whole of your life, with all of the circumstances. That's one of the things that that psalm was telling us earlier. So blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. He is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. Think about those things. Think about him being your shepherd, carrying you even through the stuff, even through the challenges. So if if that word's creating an obstacle for you, we don't really want it to create an obstacle. We want it to be an invitation into a bigger picture and a bigger way of seeing that God's doing things even.